0: Welcome to That Said, I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Cody Keenan about his new book, Grace, President Obama and Ten Days in the Battle for America. Cody rose from a campaign intern to become President Obama's chief political speechwriter and post-presidential collaborator. He is a partner at the speech writing firm Fenway Strategies and teaches political speech writing at Northwestern University. Cody Keenan, welcome to That Said. Hey, Michael. So I'd like to begin these interviews by asking our authors to tell us something about themselves, where they were raised, where they went to school, how they ended up in the profession that they're in. So if you could walk us through that, that would be wonderful.
1: Sure. I was born in Wrigleyville, uh, just a quick block from Wrigley Field in Chicago. And uh spent my early years there and then moved up two suburbs to Wilmette, Illinois. Um, ultimately, went to Ridgefield High School in Connecticut uh, when, when my parents moved for their jobs and then back to Chicago to go to Northwestern University.
0: And what did you study there? Started
1: pre-med, um, flamed out of chemistry, which I think is the point, and uh, ended up in political science with a minor in Spanish.
0: And did you go then to the Kennedy School at some point did I read?
1: That was later. First, right out of school, I went to um, work for Ted Kennedy in the Senate as an intern in his mailroom and spent uh, about three and a half years in his office, ultimately writing a few speeches for him. And um, I was a legislative aide and the only one on his remarkable staff that didn't have some sort of advanced degree. So I went to the Kennedy School to try to pick up some quantitative skills that I skipped in college.
0: And you write about your time with Kennedy that it was about as important an education as you could get as it informed your career going forward. So can you talk a little bit about working for Kennedy and, and what did you learn from him principally? Yeah,
1: of course. It's a few things. First was you know, just sitting in the mailroom. You you start, you know, my job was was to open letters from people and route them to where they needed to go to whoever could help. And you quickly see that politics is not some glamorous TV drama. It really has deep and meaningful consequences for people. And it just taught me a lot. And watching his staff, you know, he had the biggest staff on the Hill and the most impressive staff on the Hill and probably has more bills to his name than any other senator. And just watching him work was an incredible learning experience. And, you know, he was somebody who was laser focused on what it was all about. And I was just very, very lucky to have him as my first political boss.
0: You write of him that... While he relished being a public lightning rod behind the scenes, he was a real champion of bipartisanship. Him and, um, Orrin Hatch and others, as you said, moved more legislation through Congress than perhaps any other senator in history. And did that help you as you thought through how to articulate Obama's vision? Cause he too thought of himself in this bipartisan, making role
1: they were different i mean kennedy really did relish being you know kind of the the liberal bad guy but i've never seen any conflict between sticking up for your values and your principles and your ideals and your beliefs versus working with the other side to to get them through you don't have to capitulate to vote for a bill that an opponent's written but if there's if you can get half of what you want that's pretty good that's better than nothing. And then you you get it and you protect it and you fight to get the next half later on. So I've never seen a conflict between, you know, being a hardcore progressive and being somebody who's willing to work across the aisle and get stuff done.
0: Yeah, it's the notion of perfect being enemy of good. That's right. So it says in the book that you started out your journey as a campaign intern in Chicago to become the chief speechwriter in 2013. So talk us a little bit through that journey and then we'll turn to the heart of the book.
1: Sure. I, um, you know, so I was still working for Ted Kennedy and going to the Kennedy School when the Obama campaign came calling. Um, John Favreau had been his chief speechwriter for a few years at that point. Obama's chief speechwriter for a few years at that point. He started with him when he first um, won election to the Senate. And we shared a mentor in a woman named Stephanie Cutter, who um, she had been Ted Kennedy's communications director when I was working for him. And then she was John Kerry's communications director on uh, his presidential campaign when Babs was working for him. So she connected the two of us and uh, we just hit it off. It turned out there had been, uh, you know, one of the first big speeches I wrote for Kennedy was at an event where Barack Obama was speaking too, And John and I were both uh, just kind of off to the side of the stage watching our bosses. We didn't know each other at the time. So we bonded over that, and John was from Massachusetts and had a great affinity for the Kennedys. So he hired me over the phone, mostly because he was just drowning in work at that point. It had gone from a couple speeches a week to four or five a day, and he just needed help. So I, I drove out to Chicago, and uh, it was just good to be back in my hometown to work on a presidential campaign for somebody I believed in.
0: And you write of the job that those who watched the TV show The West Wing presumed that being A speechwriter for Obama would be the coolest job in the world, and sometimes they were right. But most of the time, though, you writing, I was sitting alone at a computer, bereft of sunlight, freaking out about what to write, stewing in a toxic mix of press, stress, and self-doubt, thinking that this is about the most effing, terrifying job you've ever held in your life. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, it was a real challenge writing for Barack Obama, always. He had very high expectations, and he was a very talented writer in his own right. He viewed speech writing as a collaboration. He wanted us to give him something he could work with, and he liked staying up late and editing speeches and with his pen. But that was never good enough for us. We didn't want to just get him something he could work with. We wanted to get him something that he would be impressed by, even though that's not his stated goal for us. But uh, we did that all the same, and we would, you know, you just... It's a writing is just a very lonely profession, and then when you've got deadlines and millions of people are going to be tuning into a speech, you know you, you can really get into your head, and you just kind of sit there by yourself all night trying to craft something that rises to the moment.
0: The notion of self doubt that permeates your book, as you wonder, you said of yourself that you wondered whether you just were a good mimic of your predecessor, and in fact were just a a fraud. It's got to be hard.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I never really got over that. You know, just it was it was my first true speechwriting job, and I just I just held on to it for 14 years, and that never really goes away. Even after, you know, we wrote he delivered 3,477 speeches and statements in the White House, and you know, by the second term when I was a chief speechwriter, I edited all of them. But still, no matter how close we worked together, it's just it that feeling never truly went away. That sense of imposter syndrome. And I think a lot of people in our White House had it. And I actually think that's a good thing. It means that we, you know, we didn't feel like we were entitled to be there. We, we wanted to earn it every single day. And I think that's, that's actually a really good thing.
0: Mm. So the heart of the book is about the writing of a speech that was delivered after the murder of Reverend Pinckney at the Emanuel African Methodist Church in Charleston, South Carolina, by Dylan Roof, who's now pending sentencing for those murders. So can you turn back to June 2015 and set the stage for us of what's going on in that June 17th to June 26th period, which is the heart of the book?
1: Sure. Before, before these 10 days even began, we were already focused on two looming Supreme Court decisions the next week. You know, Supreme Court rules on a bunch of cases at the same time. I think there were 14 in total, but there, there were two that we really got our eyes on. And it was the second time Obamacare was before the court and marriage equality. And my team, it was part of our role to write speeches for any possible outcome, because we found out how the Supreme Court would rule the same way everybody else did. There's no heads up for the White House. We'd find out by watching cable TV. We had a lawyer in the courtroom, but but by the time they would peck out an email on their Blackberries, you know, the, the verdict was on television. So you're not going to make the country wait several hours to hear from Barack Obama while you write a speech. So we, we prepared four drafts for each ruling, win or lose, or something in between. And you don't know what day it's going to come down either. It could have come down the, at the beginning of those 10 days, which was the end of a week, or it could have come down the following week, but you just had to be ready. So we're working on those. And then this, the shooting in Charleston happens, this, you know, an act of white supremacist terror when a, uh, a self-radicalized white supremacist who became steeped and immersed in Confederate iconography and mythology and was obsessed with, you know, apartheid South Africa goes into a historic and famous Black church in Charleston, South Carolina, Emanuel AME Church, and murdered eight of the parishioners while they are in Bible study, along with their pastor, and explicitly said he wanted to start a race war. And that's the type of thing that unnerves you in the White House. You know, we kind of went on alert after every mass shooting, but one that had that symbolism attached to it that threatened to reopen, you know, some of our oldest wounds, we didn't know how bad it would get after that. And so, you know, the president has to go out and give a statement the next morning. The shooting happened late at night. And we were trying to decide whether or not to give a eulogy. And our first response was just no. Uh, he didn't want to go speak at Charleston. I didn't want to write one. And um, you know, the weekend came and the president headed off to the West Coast on a trip. But then something extraordinary happened. The families of the victims um, forgave the killer at his arraignment one by one. And it was just this amazing Extraordinary act of grace that sort of changed the way everybody walked that week and ultimately persuaded the president to give a eulogy.
0: And let's talk a little bit about the process of writing this. This, as you said, was not the first mass killing. I think actually there were 13 others that you had written for. I think Obama said something to you which was instructive when it came to writing the Newtown, Connecticut Elementary School massacre. He says to you, the only anchor we have, the only things we are sure about is the love that we feel for our children, the cling of their hugs at night before we tuck them into bed, the warmth of their breath on our necks, seeing their joy. That's what matters. That's all we've got. That's the only thing we're sure we've got to make that count. So tell us with that as his, uh, and then he says, to you go write it up. So how do you do that? I mean, how do you write that speech after? Let's talk about Newtown before we move to Charleston. How do you write that when he says, go write it up? And the only thing that matters is the breath of the children on our necks at night.
1: Well, I only had 48 hours to write that eulogy. We found out um, you know, the, that shooting, that's probably the worst day in the White House of the Newtown shootings. Uh, that was on a Friday just before Christmas, just two weeks before Christmas, which just compounds things and makes them worse. And the memorial service was going to be that Sunday night. So I didn't have time really to panic. You just, in those situations, you just kind of don't think, you just do. But how do you find words for, um, you know, 20 little kids who've been murdered in their classroom? It was a real challenge and we kept that eulogy pretty short. Uh, and I, that, but I leaned on him a lot, you know, in that, that meeting you just you read from, you know, I, I took his ideas. Being a speechwriter really involves a lot of empathy, um, being able to understand your audience and, and you know, walk around in their skin for a little while. But there are limits to that. I didn't have children at the time. I do now. So you, you can imagine what it's like to lose a child, but you can't really know. So I spent a lot of time talking to other parents on staff, uh, my own parents in crafting Um something he could work with and I gave it to him and he you know he spent a lot of time on it on the Sunday of the speech he because of the memorial service he was going to miss Sasha's dance recital I think they were doing the nutcracker but he went to watch her practice that morning with with a bunch of other little kids on stage and you know just kind of this profound photo from Pete Souza of the president working on his remarks while all the you know all these little children are dancing behind him and uh, we went up to Newtown that evening which is was sad. I mean, it was, you know, it was still very, very raw and fresh there. The the elementary school was a crime scene. So the memorial service was at the local high school and president Obama spent three hours before his speech meeting with all of the parents of the kids and all their little siblings. And again, Pete Souza just takes the most extraordinary photos, but there's one of him with all these little kids who are, you know, wearing kind of chafing in their suits and pretty dresses and, they're just so young that they, they didn't quite understand where their big brother or sister had gone. And by big brother or sister, I'm talking about six-year-olds. And so he, he spent three hours with these families and then had to go compose himself in a bathroom uh, before going out to address the nation, really. And it was the first time I ever saw a Secret Service agent cry. It's, it's just one of those things that the president has to do. You know, he's the only person in America who had to hug all the family members of, of all the victims in every mass
0: shooting. You're right that a statement or speech has to show moral clarity, yet give a frightened and grieving community some reassurance that the world would keep spinning. You know, I expect that if any of those parents thought that the world would keep spinning after the loss of their child would be surprising to me. What do you say that says the world will keep spinning in that context?
1: Well, he has to talk to everybody, not just the parents. And he spent time alone with the parents. Um, I don't know what he said to them. I didn't I didn't go into those private conversations. But he has to convince the rest of the country that you have to lay down some sort of moral marker. You have to be a moral compass for the country. You have to convince people. And he he said before that speech, he said, Look, I don't want to spend a long time talking about guns and politics, but I want to politicize this because that's the only way things are ever gonna change. And I want you to signal I mean, that tell the NRA that we're coming after. We're coming for him. So that was in that speech, too. But you have to do something to to talk to the rest of the country. You know, Barack Obama viewed these high profile eulogies as you spend the first part, you know, memorializing the victims. But you spend the second part telling America what our obligations are now that they're gone. What are our responsibilities to carry on in their stead?
0: You mentioned that. Obama has to give a statement, which is a brief statement after the murders in the church by Dylan Roof of the pastor and eight parishioners. But then he's got to struggle with the question of is he going to give the eulogy? And you're in the speech writing cave receiving all sorts of input about how to proceed. What's the process that you should think through about whether to go or not go. And if you go, what to say? So can you talk a little bit about the actors and what sort of advice you were receiving and what the issues were that you were trying to wrestle with to thread the needle on something like this?
1: Sure. Well, he he didn't want to give a eulogy for most of that week. He didn't decide to give the eulogy until five days after the, the killings. And that was because, you know, like you said, we had already done so many of these and what it really goes back to was after Newtown, he set aside his second term agenda. He'd just been reelected, hadn't done his second inauguration yet, but he decided he was going to try to do something uh, about guns because it would have just been an abdication of leadership for him not to. We knew that the odds were long in, in a Senate where Republicans can use a filibuster to block any vote. but But one little glimmer of hope was a, a bipartisan bill that would establish universal background checks and the, the, Two men who wrote it were Pat Toomey, a conservative Republican from Pennsylvania with an A rating from the NRA, and Joe Manchin, a conservative Democrat from West Virginia with an A rating from the NRA. And for the two of them to do that was a, a pretty hopeful sign. And Toomey said, "I can bring along a couple Republicans." Ultimately, that bill was blocked by just enough Republicans, so the vote—they didn't even get to vote on it—and uh, they blocked it on the Senate floor with the parents of the Newtown children looking on from the gallery. And then they came to the White House and the president went out and gave a pretty angry statement. And then he came back inside and I was waiting for him in the Oval. And it was about as cynical as I'd ever seen him. You know, he, he was almost yelling for him and said, look, the, the next time this happens, I don't want to speak. If we've decided as a country we're not going to do anything about this, then I don't want to go keep giving eulogies every single time and somehow signal that it's, it's OK for us just to move on and wait for the next one. So I don't want to do it anymore. He had to do it two more times for, for two more mass shootings on military bases because he's the commander in chief. And that's what you do. But Charleston was going to be the first true test of whether he wanted to, to do it or not. And at first he didn't. But it was it was what those families did. That act of grace and, and forgiving the killer, something I couldn't bring myself to do that ultimately tipped him over the edge and said, you know, I, I want to go down there and, and, and hug those families. I'm not sure if I'm going to speak, but if I do, it's going to be about the concept of grace.
0: One of the complexities it seemed to me of the Charleston speech was that this was a hate crime. And you write of President Obama that he wanted always to be honest about racism, but he didn't want to use it to drive people back into their corners. Rather, he always wanted to acknowledge where we have been as a country, where we are at the present moment as a country, and where we can go ideally together as one in the future. So can you talk about that concept in the speech writing? And maybe you can talk about the Selma speech as an example of that. Then we can turn to how you incorporate it into the Charleston speech.
1: Sure. Well, you know, I always shorthanded as he practiced a politics of redemption and not, not recrimination. Um, and what I mean by that is he always knew that as a black man running for president, and i think as any it doesn't matter your skin color it it just works better if you rally people to your side if you bring more people in rather than scold people or tell them their ideas are wrong or you know send them back into their respective corners You're, you you don't win over any votes by calling somebody a racist or by telling them that their positions or their statements or their beliefs are wrong you give people the chance to change that doesn't mean you have to ignore right and wrong you should you still have to speak out forcefully for it but he you know this is how he won became the first democrat to win indiana north carolina in more than 40 years and and a black man at that this is how he won the white working class vote in wisconsin and and pennsylvania and michigan twice and became the only president since uh, eisenhower to win 51 percent of the vote twice you expand not just your coalition, but but sort of the, the people who are willing to stand with you. And one of the best lines he ever added into a speech was in Selma, where he he wrote, What a wonderful thing it might be if the South were to rise again, not by reasserting the past, but by transcending it. He gave people the chance to change. And in, in Charleston too, he he built the back half of the eulogy around the lyrics to Amazing Grace, suggesting that, you know, maybe we've been blind to the unique mayhem that gun violence visits on our communities, which isn't true. We all knew about it. Um, obviously, we'd written enough eulogies about it, but maybe we see that now. You know, maybe we've been blind to the pain that the Confederate flag stirs in so many of our citizens. You know, maybe we see that now. Maybe we've been blind to the way racism still infects so many of our institutions. Maybe we see that now. And he gives people a chance to say, "Listen, if if, if you're going to change your mind, if you're going to change your heart and your attitude, this is a good place to start. Redemption is, is just giving people a fresh start, a chance to." change their minds without bludgeoning them over over the sins of the past.
0: Mm. Obama says to you he doesn't want to give this speech and you mentioned but I'd like you to elaborate on it that what changed his mind as much as anything else was Dylan Roof's first appearance in court and how the families of the victims Responded to Roof. So, can you fill that out a little bit? You mentioned it, but I'd like you to elaborate on it. What happened that day in the church and how did that transform Obama's thinking? Sure. It
1: had nothing to do with Dylan Roof. It had everything to do with those families. And each of the families, the families of the victims went to the killer's arraignment in court and it was live streamed so you could watch it. And one by one, they went up and, you know, they were wailing and crying, but they forgave him. They'd say, you know, you took my father from me, you took my mother from me, my child, uh, but I forgive you. And it was extraordinary. I didn't have a a lot of background in the AME church, only tangentially through speech writing. But I called Obama's pastor right afterwards and said, you got to explain this to me. And he said that, that grace and forgiveness are fundamental tenets of the AME church. They're literally practicing what they they are preached to about every Sunday. And it was just extraordinary, you know. That I, there's there's no data to support this, but I I really believe that what they did sort of changed the tone of everything in the country that week. You know, you started to see Republicans move to bring down the Confederate flag in the South. The governor of Alabama quietly ordered it brought down. Strom Thurmond's son, who was a state rep in in South Carolina, said that it was wrong and that it should come down. And you saw some of the biggest merchants in America, Amazon, Walmart. Stop selling competitor merchandise and people just sort of walked a different way. I mean, the NRA always goes silent after a mass shooting. That's just, that's just their shtick. They disappear for a week and hope everybody will forget. But it was that extraordinary act of grace. You know, even, even five days after the shooting, Obama still didn't want to go speak, but that was when he said, you know, if I do, um, that's what I want it to be about that concept of grace
0: and grace as is defined is the act of extending unmerited love. Or favor or goodwill to somebody else, the unmerited acceptance of favor and goodwill. That's a hard concept to articulate, it would seem to me. Sure. Yeah. And you're right. You're right that we're on sort of like day seven of this 10 day journey, which your book elaborates. And you say it's 72 hours essentially to kick off. And you felt like you needed. 96. You're sitting there in your office staring at a at a blank screen in this panic, I guess, in a sense. And I know there are a lot of people who listen to this who were my students when I was a resident fellow at the Kennedy School and elsewhere who probably have aspirations to undertake your job. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, how when there's 72 hours left and you're staring at a blank screen, and you feel like you need ninety six and it, and everyone is saying cody where's the where 's the first draft where 's the first draft? How do you do it? How do you get to the point that you have a first draft
1: yeah well it 's the job i always uh i thrived on deadlines, which were usually helpful in this case, it was just a challenge there wasn 't enough time because we we were still working on all of the speeches for Obamacare and marriage equality at the same time. and there was just too much going on and too many people coming by my office and too many people trying to Insert their own self into his eulogy, and you just tune it all out and work but it's it's never fun in the moment, but writing I love writing it's hard, I like it because it's hard it, the you know finding the right words, being precise with your thoughts and, and syntax it's a challenge it's always difficult, but I love it and you know you mentioned young people one of the reasons I wrote this book and and there's a lot in this book besides those it all sticks to those ten days, but I talk a lot about my colleagues and the president and the way we work and and most importantly, probably the pace of change and how for all the 2,922 days we served in the White House, you go home happy if you move the ball forward just a little bit. And that's not giving up. That's not, you, you just, you don't get victories every single day, but, but it's all of those hundreds and thousands of days of moving the ball forward a little bit. So then, then you score a touchdown. You know, it just takes that much time to rack up those victories. So, I, But I, I want young people to know, A, that democracy is hard and it is a challenge. Um, but B, it is 100% worth it. It's worthy of your time and your efforts. You will make friends forever. Uh, I still talk to the president. He just came to a wedding last weekend between two staffers. You know, I, some of my best friends still to this day were people I worked in the White House. I met and married my wife while you're in the White House. It's just politics is worth your time. And you can change millions of lives if you if you keep at it. There is no room for giving up. And, and a major point of this book is, you know, the triumphs of that week, the progressive triumphs like Obamacare and marriage equality. Those were decades in the making. You know, Obama pushed hard for Obamacare, but, but that was the culmination of a 100-year movement for universal health care. And we still didn't finish the job, but we got it closer than anybody else. And marriage equality was the culmination of a 50-year effort for LGBTQ equality. You stick with it for thousands and thousands and thousands of days until you get that touchdown. Hmm.
0: I was struck by the collegiality in the White House. You hear of other White Houses where the knives are always out and you have to be careful about your back. But it struck me that this White House was a family family. And that you were all supportive of one another and that, in fact, helped you um, enormously as you received ideas from all corners of the White House and outside advisors to help educate you about issues like the AME Church's uh, notion of forgiveness and grace. And so is it unique, you think? Was this a unique White House, from what you can gather in speaking to others who've held your job in other White Houses, was this special?
1: Um, I don't know. I don't really have much to compare it to. I didn't spend a lot of time talking to people um, from other White Houses because our job was to make the president sound like the president, like himself, not like anybody else. But, you know, I, I do know that more of us stuck around for eight years than any other White House. And that was really forged in the in the early campaign years when we'd all just work together for 14 hours a day in Chicago, we became family. We, you know, a bunch of us moved in together and lived together while we were working in the white house. So we'd be together 24 seven I, when I met my future wife, she eventually moved in with me and two other guys and was our fourth roommate uh, before we got married and got a place of our own. Just, you know, we we went to each other's funerals and funerals for parents. We went to each other's weddings you know, I, I just joked to the president a couple of weeks ago that he's he's got all he's got dozens of little grandbabies running around America now from people who met working for him, who got married and had kids, including my own daughter. She's she's his little adopted grandbaby. And it really was uh, a collegial family place. It, it changed over the years when, you know, new blood would come in. But that original tone that the president said never truly went away.
0: You mentioned In the writing process, how when you got a draft and you came to show it to the president, one of the things that he instructed you, which I'd like you to talk about, is finding the silences, the Miles Davis reference. I thought that was so interesting as a device for finding a voice for this speech.
1: Sure. This was for the 2015 State of the Union Address. And, you know, that speech is a it's just kind of a beast of its own, where every one of the cabinet is coming at you to put their their policy ideas in and it becomes this laundry list, no matter how many years we would sit down and say this year and do it different. In 2015, I thought I had the best version of it we'd had yet, probably the one that told the best story that was the most lyrical, but It's still a thing that you just are compelled to cram everything into. And I gave him the first draft about eight days out. And he called me up to the Oval to talk about it and said, listen, man, this, I think we are in the best shape we've ever been eight days out, but the whole thing is up here at a 10 and every sentence says something, every word says something. And I need some of this speech to go down to an eight, a six, a four, you know, a five. And the best way I can think of to explain that is, do you, you listen to jazz? And I said, not really. And he said, um, well, you know, the thing about Miles Davis is it's the notes you don't play. It's the spaces in between. It's the silences. So, and I, then I, I knew what he was, what he was talking about. And it's just something I had, it's something I was good at with eulogies and commencements and, and speeches where you could put a little heart into it and emotion. But the State of Union is not one of those speeches. And he said, so, you know, go home tonight and pour yourself a drink and listen to some Miles Davis. Don't do any work. And then come back here tomorrow and find me some
0: silences. Mm. And one of the things that you write about was the need through those silences and through the active words to make Reverend Pinckney, um, pastor who was murdered in, in his church, unique. And you asked of him, because you didn't know him, to have you be told something about him. And one of the lines that you mentioned, which I found profound, was someone said, when he walked in a room, it felt like the future arrived. And so how did you tease out that concept of it felt like the future arrived?
1: Well, what a wonderful thing to say about somebody. He, it just struck me immediately. He was he was this young. Um, he'd been preaching since he was a kid, pretty much. And he was a pastor by 23, I think, uh, with this flock that depended on him and looked to him for guidance. And he was also a state legislator in one of the poorest places in America, in, in South Carolina's low country. So he had you know, not just his flock in this church, but this big congregation, you know, in a sprawling swath of the state that always looked to him, he delivered. And he, to do those two jobs with, I think he had two young kids. It's just extraordinary, but he was somebody who was inspirational and really cared about his people. And for, for someone to describe him as in that way to say, you know, uh, when he came into the room, it was like the future arrived. I just thought it was extraordinary. And I, It's the type of thing that you put into a eulogy to show people what we have lost and what we're going to keep losing unless we do something about
0: it. Bob Dylan has this song called Day of the Locusts when he received an honorary degree at Princeton. And he's talking about how unhappy he was to be there. And he has a line, he says, that darkness was everywhere. It felt like a tomb that he was ready to go. I was already walking. The next thing I knew, there was light in the room. And that was when Cloretta Scott King came in. So he describes her as light in the room, and here is Pinkney yeah. being described as the future having arrived. It's it's, it's a great it's a great notion. Uh, so there you are, That's you nice. and Bob Dylan.
1: Yeah, there you go. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I I I got I got it from a newspaper article. I didn't come up with it on my own. That someone had said that about him. So that uh, more props to Dylan.
0: Well, except that you incorporate the concept. Of the future arriving in this wonderful, wonderful speech. So the speech is taking place and you write up the speech that the president needs to speak first to the first row, then to the next row, and then finally to America writ large. And so can you talk a little bit again, I'm so interested in the structure of speech writing and your words and the message that you're trying to deliver. So talking about how you saw the audience and then how are you going to try to articulate the various components of the speech to touch on the themes that mattered to the president and to the speechwriter team?
1: Sure. Well, that structure is particular to a eulogy. You know, if you've been asked to eulogize someone and he was asked to eulogize the reverend, not all nine, but we're, we're mindful of, of the other eight. And this was you know, think about what the community was going through. This was the sixth funeral of the week with maybe fourth with five more to go. I'm not sure. So think about what they're going through, but so you always you always talk to the first row first, you know the the widow and the children and and the people who've lost their the person they love the most, and then you you want to address you know his his flock, his both his parishioners and his constituents. And then you talk to the rest of America. You know, if you're someone like the president, most most of us who've been asked to eulogize somebody don't have a battery of cameras trained on us. So you can keep it to the room. But again, he always saved the second part of eulogy to really remind us what our obligations are now that this person's gone. And he wanted to talk about race. He wanted to talk about guns. He wanted to talk about the Confederate flag. And he was the one who wrapped them all up in this beautiful structure based on the lyrics to Amazing Grace.
0: And so let's talk, if you don't mind, Cody, about the speech. You said that you have to tell the listeners why Reverend Pinckney mattered, try to make sense of the cruel and violent end he suffered, bring people back to the moment by making them laugh, which is interesting in in a eulogy, because Pinckney's life wasn't sad and the eulogy shouldn't be either, and then turn those small truths into a big bang in order to draw an eloquent conclusion. So can you sort of talk through the language of and the speech itself? Because I think it was a brilliant speech, honestly. It's at the end of the book, and I commend everybody who buys this book to maybe start by reading that speech and then work their way through the process that you got to it. But so walk us through the speech and what you were saying and how you were saying it.
1: Sure. You know, I, again, you, you know, spend the first page or so eulogizing the pastor and telling, sharing some stories from his life, stories that illustrate a broader truth. And then that's where, as you said, I, I turn that truth into the, the big bang, the, what are the lessons we take from this man's life? And what are the lessons we take from our inaction over decades on guns, on race, on the flag that led to, um, the death of these nine people and, You know, the language was it was the second half was all Obama's. I mean, he rewrote it in three hours, but it all came from what he described as an open heart, you know, based on what the families had done uh, the Friday before, one week before the eulogy, based on how the country had carried itself that week, based on, you know, the Supreme Court upholding Obamacare. So you've got millions of people who are no longer going to be told they're losing their health insurance and based on marriage equality. So you've got millions of people. Who have now been told they can get married just like anybody else. And all these things combined to, to create this, despite the fact that we were there to eulogize people who were murdered in the worst way, this open heart that he had. And, and he'd, he'd added in the night before, you know, correspondence with, with a pen pal of his, Marilyn Robinson about a reservoir of goodness. And, you know, if that's the, if that's the type of thing that we could tap in a moment like that, then, then maybe we can change.
0: And you write, though, that now that Pinckney was gone, we had an obligation to fill the void. And I love this by expanding our own moral imagination by rediscovering our obligations to ourselves and to each other. That's a terrific message.
1: Sure. And that's, you know, that's what everything in the and certainly in the back half of the speech was tailored to.
0: So. Cody, in the time remaining, we don't really have time to read the whole speech, but can you walk us through sort of what you consider to be the highlights, I guess, culminating in President Barack Obama singing Amazing Grace in the AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina? Can you talk us through that?
1: Well, that's that's surely the part that uh, everybody remembers, even if they don't remember the rest of the speech, just because it's something you don't see every day. He had written in the lyrics to Amazing Grace the night before where my draft ended. It it ended on just the phrase Amazing Grace. And that's where he crossed out the rest and added the lyrics and built the rest of the speech around it. And that morning we had just left the White House where he'd he'd just given a really beautiful set of remarks on marriage equality and, and how that victory came about again through you know decades of concerted effort, but also millions of little acts of of love with, with people coming out to their parents and then their parents accepting them in return. Um, and then America should be very proud. And he was, he was very moved by that, that the country had come so far, so fast on a, on a, relatively speaking, so far, so fast on a equal rights issue. So five minutes later, we board, um, the helicopter, Marine one to Charleston. And, um, it's the president, and the first lady are there and, and me and Valerie Jarrett and Dennis McDonough, the chief of staff. And the president's still working on his remarks and the rest of us are just making small talk. And he handed it back to me right before we landed and said, you know, if it feels right, I might sing it. And, you know, with, with what little I did know of the AME Church, I knew that he would be welcomed. I knew that he wouldn't be singing alone. And if you watch it on TV, you know, you can see there are plenty of times throughout the, the service where the organist would just start playing. So you knew that as soon as he started singing, everybody would sing along with him.
0: There was a, a lot of call and response. Over the course of of the speech, yep. culminating in the song, but I liked very much what was said and what I think is in some sense where I'd like to conclude, except for a question or two off topic a bit, but you said, Pinckney knew that the path to grace, this undeserved blessing bestowed by the victims, this path to grace involved an open mind, and an open heart. And you've mentioned this open heart, but what did you and what did Obama mean by having an open heart in this context? And in, in, for all of us, as a lesson to take forward.
1: Well, he'd come up with the idea just via his, his correspondence with Marilyn Robinson and, and what she'd written about as a reservoir of goodness that we can do to each other. And between what the families did to forgive the killer and, you know, people getting the country deciding that, that yes, there is a right to health insurance. And yes, there is a right to marriage equality. He, he did have that open heart. And it's, it's again, it goes back to, um, a politics of, of redemption, you know, giving people the chance to change.
0: And may grace now lead everyone home and may God continue to shed his grace on America is how, how it ends. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah was there a joy in the house you know there
1: there there was actually joy in the house especially after singing i think probably more people teared up watching on television watching the president do it than than together there was there was a lot of joy in that arena um, celebrating this man's life
0: i want to end on a you said in the speech a eulogy there has to be laughter and and a happy moment because this person's life needs to be remembered in happiness as well as in, in sorrow. So I want to take you to happiness and a little sorrow as, as we end the speech. First, let's talk about the one impossible speech that you were assigned and couldn't do, and that is the Green Bay Packers winning the Super Bowl.
1: Yeah, I took the afternoon off. I gave it to somebody else. Not a chance. I wasn't going to be there for that.
0: As the audience knows, you're a Chicago Bears fan. Yeah, and, and, yeah, no and that, way. that was... That was the worst. That's
1: a bridge too far. Right,
0: right, right. But the best speech ever, the best speech ever was what? Inviting uh, the Chicago.
1: Mean, yeah, that's up there. That's up there. I don't think I can say it's the best, but it might be second. But yeah, getting the Chicago Cubs in the White House was pretty great. Four days before we left. You know, we'd been waiting 108 years and, and we just got it in under the wire.
0: Yeah, because of our Miami Yankees fan, because we lent you Araldis Chapman. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Obama's a, a White Sox fan, though, so it wasn't his highest uh, and best day, was it?
1: He was he was great about it. He uh, hung out with the entire team, shook everybody's hand. That doesn't always happen. It was the first time – it was the only time the first lady came down to see a sports team, and she addressed the whole team, and, and then there there really wasn't a dry in the house. She talked about watching Cubs games on her dad's lap, you know, and all these big guys started choking up. It was pretty special.
0: Mm. So, Cody, the book tells us that for too long we've been blind to the way past injustices continue to shape our present. And I think that the book is so valuable a lesson, not only in the process of writing, but in this notion of grace and open heartedness and making sure that we understand that past injustices do not need to shape our future, that we can rise above them as one. And I think it's an important message that you've written in this book, and I'm very grateful to you for writing it and for appearing on That Said with me today. So thank you. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at That Said Zeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For that said, I'm Michael Zeldin.